Good morning, Forest View. Thank you so much for joining us today. We trust you are doing well. My name is Nat Evans. I am the lead pastor here. Last week, we began a new series simply titled Hope Honestly. And our hope with this series is to explore the topic of hope. It's a bad joke, but hey, sometimes it happens. Our, our, our desire is to explore hope and to talk about what does hope look like in our world? What does hope look like when we are confronted with the brokenness and sin and evil and death in the world around us? How, how can we hope honestly and let it be more than just happy thoughts about the future? And our other hope with this series is how do we embody hope as a community? How can we make hope not just some sort of feeling or experience in our minds, but something that is lived out in our lives, in our actions? How do we live out hope in flesh and blood into a world that desperately needs hope? This morning, I want to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we were looking at Psalm 42, and we're going to just uh, look at two more verses, and that's going to be kind of like the launch pad to, to talk about what we are going to be talking about today. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to Psalm 42. We're looking at verses 5 and verse 6. Here's what the psalmist writes. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Now, you'll notice that our psalmist, he has been going through a, a time of turmoil and struggle. And here it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on in his life. He finds himself far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, the, the place where the people of Israel would go to encounter, to meet with God. He finds himself distant and far away, way, way up north near Mount Hermon. Uh, hundreds of kilometers away. And he finds in himself this longing, this missing of home. Maybe he, he finds himself in a situation where he's oppressed, where, where there are enemies around him seeking to harm him or hurt him. And so as he cries out, my soul is downcast, he is overwhelmed with the situation around him. And yet he reminds himself to orient himself around God and to place his hope in God. And then he says this, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. Biblical Christian hope, it always starts with remembering. Now, this seems counterintuitive for most of us. I mean, hope is about looking to the future. It's about happy thoughts about what's to come. It's about optimism, and maybe things will work out. Hope carries with it this belief of things that we haven't seen yet or experienced, but we have a confidence that they will happen. But our psalmist, he invites us, instead of looking to the future, to look back. I will remember you. He is, of course, speaking about God. Our starting place as followers of Jesus 
is to begin, if we want to be people who embody, who live incarnate hope, concrete hope in the world around us, it begins with us remembering. Now, we live in a time when it's hard to remember. Quick exercise for anyone over the age of 30. How many phone numbers can you remember off by heart? Don't look at your phone. Don't open it up. How many off the top of your head can you remember? And now here's the next follow-up question to that. How many of those phone numbers are ones that you learned when you were a child? Ever since this invention of the smartphone, we have lived with this, uh, this experience of needing to remember less and less and having this wonderful device that we can carry around in our hands that does all our remembering for us. It has reminders. It has task lists. It will even remind us to call certain people on certain dates. Our calendar is there. There's all sorts of warnings that pop up. And if you do forget your spouse's birthday, hopefully Facebook will tell you. I mean, this is the life that so many of us have. We don't have to remember very much. And it seems to me that it is no coincidence in an age where we have less and less to remember, we are experiencing more and more despair and more and more hopelessness. Now, I think this is due to some pretty significant shifts within our culture. And I think these are helpful things for us to talk about. And some of these things, these shifts are good and some of them have bad implications, but I think it's helpful for us to be aware of them because they, in a sense, are shaping us and impacting us. And the more awareness that we have of them, the more that we can look at things and go, okay, this is good and this is bad. Now, in the past, we would place a significant amount of our hope in various different institutions and traditions we would look to those as kind of being guiding lights for how we are to live and be. And so we would look at things like the church or maybe different political movements or, or maybe we would even look at our family. And we wouldn't just simply look at our immediate family, but we would look at a long line of our family. There was this sense of history and heritage. And these were things that we looked to to shape us and give us direction and meaning and identity in our lives. And over the last number of years, we have found ourselves approaching these traditions, these heritages, these families, and these institutions with rising and rising skepticism and cynicism. And this is incredibly understandable because we've become more and more aware of some of the horrible evils that these various different traditions and institutions have wrought in the world. Uh, we've already spoken about it today, but it's worth mentioning again the 200 and the remains of what we believe to be 215 children buried in, outside the school in the, at the Kamloops Residential School. And we think about that and we mourn that and, and we realize this is something that seems to have been swept under the rug or ignored. And so these criticisms have come against the government and against the Catholic Church, those who are in charge of overseeing these programs. And we, it brings within us this deep cynicism and skepticism and this inability to be able to trust these various different groups. And as we've seen this distrust grow within us, it brings us to a place where instead of looking back, 
to the past, to these organizations, traditions, institutions. Instead, if we want to really find true hope and we want to find meaning and purpose and how we're supposed to live our lives, we don't look back, rather we look inward. Your goal, your hope is ultimately to find your true self. And you do this not by looking at your family and heritage. You do this by looking within. You find yourself. Sometimes the term is used self-actualization. It's this idea of that underneath it all, uh, underneath the, the, all the different things that have been imposed on you by tradition and family and institution, if you can just shake those off, throw those away, these oppressive ideas and structures that were meant to repress you and hold you back from finding your true self, once you do that, if you look within and listen to your heart and your feelings, then you will find your true you. In a sense, we are all pioneers blazing our own trail. Don't look back. Don't remember. Instead, look forward and shake off the chains of the past. And we call this authenticity. It's about finding your true self. What drives you, motivates, stirs within you, burns, brings a passion and a drive within you. Find those things and live into them. Now, now there's some beautiful, important things about authenticity. Uh, there's this honesty. There's this in-tuneness. There's this, this being self-aware that we as a church, we celebrate and we think are great things about this emphasis or this, this rise of acknowledging the importance of authenticity. But for us as a church, Forest View Church, ultimately we see our lives as being about being apprentices to Jesus. And that within each and every one of us, there's this beautiful part of us that God has created to bear his image, to reflect him and who he is into our world around us. That there is an, a, a longing for eternity that God has placed within each and every one of us. And it is good and it is beautiful and it is something to be celebrated and nurtured and helped to discover more and more in, as we share our lives together. But then there's a dark side to each and every one of us. One of anger, one of fear, one of selfishness and pride. There's one that puts our own desires and our own pleasures above other people. And there's that side of who we are that, that alienates us from a true relationship with God. And it actually alienates us from the person that each one of us were created to be. And so for us as a community, we celebrate authenticity, but it always must go hand in hand with discipleship. Finding your true self does not happen in a vacuum, in isolation, all by yourself. And it does not happen in an echo chamber where you go and you say what you think and feel and everyone echoes that back at you and affirms that and celebrates it. Rather for us, true authenticity must go hand in hand with discipleship as we discover who we truly want to become. And one of the images that we think works best for that is to simply talk about table fellowship. 
It's about gathering together with others, sharing our lives together, welcoming one another, discussing the difficult parts of our life, both the great, beautiful things that can be affirmed and celebrated together and the dark things within our life, the things that are are not in sync with the heart of God. And we can have tough and difficult conversations all within the context of committed relationships of respect and love. And so for us, as a church, we we understand why remembering is hard in our culture. And yet for us as a church, we want to be a community that takes this seriously. So bringing it back to remembering. There's an interesting thing as you read through the Old Testament. Is that God shows up again and again with a command to remember. There's this way in which God will show up and his immediate command to his people is not, you need to go do this, 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 or do this, this, and this. Rather, God's command begins with the place of remembering. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. I could grab a number of examples. I just want to use this. God speaking to his people. Remember, his starting place, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God's commands flow out of this remembering of who he is. Throughout the Old Testament, God shows up to his people at different times and different places, and he always introduces himself. Now, the interesting thing about his introductions is that many ways they function as a reminder, as a remembering. You can go through, read through your Old Testament, and you will find again and again, God shows up to his people and he says, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. He says this over and over and over again as he introduces himself. And it's easy to get like a, a princess bride, Inigo Montoyo, you killed my father. My name is Inigo Montoyo, you killed my father, prepare to die. If you've seen the movie, you'll get it. And if you haven't, go do that right now. Pause this and then come back to it. Uh, go and watch this movie. It's this, like just this thing that they will say over and over and over again. God says this continuously over and over and over again. And what he is driving home to his people is that he is a God who is at work in the world. He is doing something bigger. Essentially, it is God saying, I am up to something, and this something has been happening since way before you were born, and it is something that is going to be happening long after you are dead and gone. There is a bigger story that God is telling and realize where you fit. You are the little story that is a part of the bigger story. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he's a rabbi, a theologian, a brilliant scholar. He has this amazing quote that I think challenges our understanding of ourselves uh, and specifically as we live and move and, and exist in a culture that, uh, that elevates authenticity. This is what he said. There is no sense in Judaism of the atomic individual. 
the self in and for itself. We encounter in Western philosophy from Hobbes onwards. So essentially he's saying there's these ideas that you are an individual, you're isolated, you are your self-made person, you create who you want to be. And he says in Judaism, that just that concept, that idea, that way of seeing yourself and the world doesn't exist. He goes on to say this. Instead, our identity is bound up horizontally with other individuals, our parents, spouse, children, neighbors, members of the community, fellow citizens, fellow Jews. He continues on saying, we are also joined vertically to those who came before us, whose story we make our own. And so it's not just about the people in your life, the people that are immediately interacting with. This is about being a part of a larger story that transcends their lifespan. To be a Jew is to be a link in the chain of the generations, a character in a drama that began long before we were born and will continue long after our death. And then he concludes with this great line, memory, remembering, is essential to identity. So Judaism insists, to be a Jew is to know that the history of our people lives on in us. I mean, if you were to go and try and summarize the Old Testament, I would just say it's about, hey, it's God telling his bigger story. And it's a larger story that does not reach its climax until you encounter Jesus in the new. Romans chapter 15, starting at verse uh, 8. This is the Apostle Paul. He essentially says, this, is, this, is, this thing that God has done in Jesus and raising him from the dead, that's actually a part of this bigger story that God has been telling throughout history. This is not a one-off event. This is not just some random thing that has happened. This is a part of the bigger thing God has been doing all the way back to the patriarchs, all the way back to the beginning. For I tell you, this is Romans chapter 15, starting verse 8, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul then goes, he grabs a bunch of different verses throughout the Old Testament. He quotes them here. I want to skip ahead to verse 13. This is how he concludes it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. For Paul, he sees in Jesus ultimately the climax of the story that God has been telling through history. It is a story of of redemption from our sins and victory over death. It is a story about new life and an intimacy with God that has been made only possible through Jesus Christ. And it is a story that fills him with an immense sense of hope. In fact, this is the story in which he finds all hope. This is a story. This is a God who is worth giving up everything for. 
So let's talk about embodying hope. Because there's a question that we all wrestle with. We, we hear these truths about, I guess, Jesus is our hope. And we have this hope because there's this bigger story that God is telling in history. But how do we walk through this and navigate this in our own lives? Well, well let's go back to one of the patriarchs, Jacob. Uh, Jacob, he is a twin and he feels like he is the lesser of the twins. He has an older brother, or the one, the older twin. He's beat him out by a couple of seconds. He, he is the outdoorsman. He's popular with his father. And Jacob often feels neglected. And at the same time, he's very smart, very bright. And he uses this to his advantage over his brother. And without going into a massive part in his backstory, Jacob deceives his father, steals a blessing that is meant for his brother, and his brother is furious and intent on killing him. And so Jacob finds himself on the run, essentially running for his life, uncertain if his brother is after him, if he's coming behind him, and uncertain about the future that lies ahead of him. And he is undoubtedly running in the wilderness. He is exhausted and tired and worn out and afraid, probably navigating feelings of immense guilt in the midst of all of this. And he finds himself, he just can't go any further. He lies down, finds a rock, and uses it for a pillow. And he has this dream. This, there's this dream that in the place that he's lying, he sees essentially this, this opening up in the sky, this thin place, and he realizes there is a staircase that leads from the earth all the way up to the heavens. And there's angels of the Lord coming, ascending, and descending this staircase, essentially going up and, and taking the commands from God and heading out into the world and going and carrying them out and then returning to God to receive their next instructions. And then he sees God above it all. And here is what God speaks to Jacob in his dream. Genesis chapter 28, starting at verse 13. Here's what God says. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Again, hey, remember, I'm the God that your dad used to tell you about. Go to the next slide. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm doing something amazing and incredible through you and through your family. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, this place. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Go to the next slide. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. For many of us in our lives, we go through these experiences, these, these moments where it just feels like God is absent. We just carry on, keep going and doing what we're doing. But every once in a while, there are these breakthrough moments, these significant moments where it's like, oh, yeah, God God was here. God was present. I, I can see that God is active in the world. Now, for most of us, it's not a dream. Most of us, we don't see God or hear his voice speak directly to us. And yet for some of us, it's, it's a warm sensation of just that God is speaking to, is true, is real. For, for many of us, it's something that we experience within community. 
as people are caring for us and, and nurturing us and helping us to grow and discover who He is. For some of us, it's an experience of being out in nature and, and encountering God in profound ways. And for some of us, it's, it's simply looking at and reflecting on the cross and seeing the, the, the suffering of Christ and, and the hope that comes through His resurrection life. But for many of us, there's these, these moments, and they don't happen every day for most of us. In fact, they, maybe for some of us, it happens once or twice in our entire lives. But there are these moments where we realize that God has actually been there, present the entire time, and God is working and doing something amazing. Now, Jacob's circumstances in this situation are important to take into consideration. He's walking through a time of immense fear and guilt. I mean, it feels like his life is going off the rails. Everything is falling apart. His family, his network of supports are are in complete shambles. And even his understanding of himself. I mean, he's gone, he's betrayed his father, he's deceived his father, he's angered his brother. He, He just feels lost and scattered. And the amazing thing is that in this moment, this is the time when he discovers that God is actually still present and at work. In the midst of the mess, in the midst of the the times where we have messed up big time, in the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of the scary situation, the future is uncertain, whether it's all these different things, in the midst of all of that, God is at work. So Jacob wakes up. Genesis chapter 28, verse 17, it says this, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is a gate of heaven. And so early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, which basically means house of God, though the city used to be called Lutz. And so he knows this place. This is what it used to be called. But he says, I got to give this a new name, and I have to set up a monument, something to remind me about this particular moment. He renames it. He sets up a monument. He builds something concrete there to point himself back to the truth of he, that he has experienced and the hope that he has discovered in the midst of a difficult, overwhelming, painful situation. So this week, I want to leave you with a specific practice. It's an invitation for us as a community to participate in. I'm just going to call it our hope practice. Oh, actually, first let me read this. This is a similar thing that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 7. God does something amazing. He protects, he cares for, he helps his people. And so Samuel the prophet, he says this, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. And another way you could translate Ebenezer is just helper stone. It's this stone, this monument to be a reminder of God's work 
and activity in our world. Something meant to help us remember what God has done and what God is doing. And so this week, here's my invitation for you. As we uh, can conclude this morning's uh, sermon, I've got some help practices that I want to invite you into. Uh, and so these, hopefully these will be pretty clear and pretty obvious. Uh, so uh, the first thing I want to say is for us as a community, we want to strive to be a place where uh, often we think about things, it's about outlook should impact our actions. So that what we believe, think, that should impact the way that we behave. And yes, that's absolutely true. But one of the things that scripture continually reveals to us is that often it works the other way around, where our actions actually influence and impact our outlook. Now, now it's interesting that modern psychology is actually starting to pick up on this. And you can hear all, read all kinds of mindfulness and different things about if you want to change your mind, then change your activity, your habits, your behavior, and it'll have a huge influence on it. And that's awesome and true, but we want to be doing that because we think this is what scripture calls us to do and the kind of people we are called to be. So what does hope or what can hope look like for us in action? Well, first practice is this, identify a moment, a season, an experience in your life or the life of someone close to you where you could clearly see that God was at work. Was there a surely God was in this place and I had no idea moments in your life? Moments where it was like, just wow, God was working through this person. I saw this family going through this difficult time and yet God used them in such profound ways and only a way that God could do it. Identify a moment like that in your life. Next, here's your practice. Create an Ebenezer for that experience as a concrete reminder of who God is and what God has done. Maybe for you, it's renaming something. Uh, maybe it's for you, it's just, maybe it's for uh, claiming a space. Maybe it's in your house, it's naming a chair, a certain thing that you're reminded. And as you sit in that chair, you are always going to think about, oh, when I sit in this chair, I remember God's faithfulness to our family as we walk through this difficult season in our life where we could, didn't have enough to, money to buy groceries or whatever it was. Or, or when you were going through a significant transition point in your life, you didn't know what you were supposed to do or where you're supposed to go, and God led you and guided your family. Find an Ebenezer. Now, maybe it's not a space thing for you. Maybe it's a time thing for you. Maybe it's picking a specific day of the year, and you're just going, we are going to commit to remembering this moment where God showed up in this tangible, significant way in our life, in my life, in our family's life, whatever it is, whatever your situation is. Have an Ebenezer, a place, a thing, a time to remind you of who God is and what God has done. And then here's number three. This one's probably in some ways is the hardest one. Um, I'd say this, don't be afraid to tell someone about it if they ask. For some of us, that might feel weird or awkward. And yet one of the most powerful things that we can say and share is the work that God has done in our life, the places that we have seen him at work. Don't be afraid to share it. If you're talking to your boss, a supervisor, can I take this day off? I'm using this to commemorate this experience I had in my life. <laughs> Someone comes over, sits in that chair, 
You can say, actually, you know what chair you're sitting in? You know what's significant about that? Maybe for you, it's about planting a tree somewhere, creating space for that thing, just to keep bringing it to mind because we naturally forget, we naturally get distracted because we've got stuff going on. And we need Ebenezer's in our life to recenter us and to focus us. Let me pray as we conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in this place even when we have no idea. We thank you that that our little stories that you are telling through our lives are a part of your bigger story that you have told and are continuing to tell through your son, Jesus Christ, and through the movement of your Holy Spirit in this world. We pray, God, that you would grant us your hope, that, that we would live as people faithful to your calling and leading in our lives, that we would be disciples of your son, loving what he loves and loving the way that he loves. And I pray, God, that as we live with an awareness of your presence and your work and your action in this world, that it would help generate a a deeper awareness from those outside of the church family that you are a God who has not given up on us, but who has chased after us with your son has redeemed us and rescued us. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.